Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. This is where Paul talks about his many visions, his extremely overpowering vision he had from Jesus, and also the thorn in the flesh that accompanied that vision. The context is this. We are in that section of 2 Corinthians in which Paul defends himself mightily against the false apostles in chapter 11. In the last part of chapter 11, he's talked about all of the sufferings, the imprisonments, the be- imprisonments, the beatings, the shipwrecks, and all that he had undergone in order to be an apostle, thus defending himself against the cocky false apostles he was opposing. So we start now in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says this, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now Paul is continuing his line of thought from the last part of chapter 11, as I just mentioned. 2 Corinthians 11.30 says this, Paul, Paul says this, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And, of course, the things he's boasting about was he mentioned he escaped from Damascus in a basket at the first part of his Christian life, which, of course, showed your weakness. If you've got to run from your enemies in a basket, that's pretty weak. You're in trouble. So now he turns to something to show his strength as opposed to his weakness. Now he'll go back to his weakness in verse 7 when he talks about the thorn of the flesh, but now he's talking about his strength. Now what he's doing here, he's walking a fine line. He's got to be firm and bold in, a, in claiming his right to be an apostle against his false apostle opponents. He's got to be bold about that, but on, in the process of that, it could sound like he's being arrogant, and so we got to be, he's got to be modest at the same time. And so he goes back and forth. Here's my strengths, here's my weakness. Here's my strength, here's my weakness. So Paul starts out by saying, I'm going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says there's nothing to be gained by it, but of course what he means is I have to do this to defend my apostolic authority. Of course, that's what's to be gained by it. But what he means is there's nothing to be gained for me in it. There's nothing in, in it for me to be gained by boasting about my visions. But I have to do this because of my need to establish my authority against these scumbags who are threatening to destroy the Corinthian church. Now, the NIV Study Bible suggests that Paul's opponents were claiming visions and revelations, so Paul was forced into doing that. And I wouldn't doubt that. I don't, there's nothing that says that they were claiming visions and revelations. But I'm sure they were, usually Religious heretics do. I mean, look look at Joseph Smith, the Mormon heretic. Well, he's not even a heretic. The Mormon cultist, I should say, who claimed to have a vision with his of Boney Maroney with his magic spectacles. So here's some examples in Paul's life of visions he had. First of all, he had the vision of his conversion, the so-called the, the heavenly vision, if you can call it that, of his conversion. And then when he was at Troas in the middle of the second journey, he had the Macedonian call. A brother from Macedonia says, "Come on over here and preach the gospel to us." On the second journey, after he goes across to Macedonia and down into Greece to Corinth, he he encountered a lot of persecution in Corinth, and the Lord told Paul in a vision to take courage. And also at the very beginning of his Christian life, when he was in Damascus and and in the desert around Damascus, he he received a vision to go on up to Jerusalem. Paul says, I think it's in Galatians, where he talks about the visions he had had at that period of time. So Paul was quite used to visions, but he didn't talk about them too much. In fact, well, I guess he had to talk about them to Luke so Luke could record the visions and acts. But he really didn't talk about them too much. But now he's going to. He says, I must go on boasting, verse 1. But now remember, his boasting is counterbalanced by the humility he received in verse 7, which I'll read now as a sneak preview, 2 Corinthians 12:7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation... 
A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. There Paul explicitly says he had trouble from Satan to keep him from becoming conceited because when you, you know, it's a sort of a heady thing to receive visions from God. We go to verse 2, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the, to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Now, of course, that man that Paul is talking about is himself. He uses the third person to show his modesty, as John Gill says. And when he says, I know a man in Christ, in is, you can always translate it as in union with. I know a man in union with Christ. Fourteen years ago. Now, this book, Second Corinthians, I say 55. Some people say 55, 56, 57. You know, those dates are, well, you know, dates are always a little bit iffy back then. But let's just say 55 A.D. So you subtract 14 from that and you end up around, what is that, 44? Excuse me, 41. I can't do basic math. It's 41 A.D. Paul was converted around 34 A.D. 41 A.D. is just about the time. It's before the first missionary journey started, which is 48 and Paul, at that time, he went from Galatia to Jerusalem. Got, he left Jerusalem because they were persecuting, persecuting him. He went to Tarsus. And then Barnabas got him in Tarsus and went back to Antioch in Syria. And in, in that time, not a lot known about, about what he did. But that's probably, in my opinion, is when this vision happened. Because it's around 41 AD or so. Now, people have given a lot of speculations as to when these visions happened Let's just say right now, we don't know. Here's Jameson Fawcett Brown. The, this epistle, 2 Corinthians, was written AD 55 through 57. Fourteen years before, we'll bring the vision to AD 41 to 43, the time of his second visit to Jerusalem. All right, well, let's talk about his visits to Jerusalem. The first visit of Jerusalem to Jerusalem was right after he had his conversion experience in Damascus. And then he was told in a vision, you need to get out of Jerusalem because they're persecuting you. That, was his, that, that could have been at the time he had it. And then he went, after he left Jerusalem, went to Tarsus, and then Barnabas got him and took him to Antioch in Syria. And so he was in Syrian Antioch for a while, working in the church there over a year, I think. And then he and Barnabas went from Antioch to take relief funds back to Jerusalem. So it, this vision could have happened then, and on the second visit to Jerusalem. Who knows? John Gill says, quote, The difference there is among chronologers and the uncertainty of their conjectures, both as to the time of the apostles' conversion and the writing of this epistle, makes it very difficult to determine this point. Adam Clark says, many conjectures, there are many of them, but we can't be certain. And so I can't be certain either, so I don't care. So it doesn't matter. So 14 years ago, now the 14 years ago does tell us one thing, though. It shows how modest Paul was. As Adam Clark says, who in the world would have visions like that and not tell anybody for 14 years? Unless he's fairly modest. Extremely modest, actually. Now Paul says that 14 years ago he was caught up to the third heaven I used to always wonder about that expression. What does the third heaven mean? Well, it's very easy. The first heaven is the Earth's atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space. And the third heaven is the presence of God. The NIV Study Bible says that, and Jameson Fawcett Brown says that, and I go with that solution. I think that makes perfectly good sense. Now, the Scripture often uses heavens in a plural sense. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Pass through the heavens, through the earth's atmosphere, heaven number one, through outer space, heaven number two, up into heaven number three, the presence of God. Jesus passed through those through the atmosphere on his way up to heaven. Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. He ascended far above the earth's atmosphere. He far ascended far above outer space to be with God. Hebrews 7.26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, above the earth's atmosphere, and above outer space. Everywhere, from he can, where he is, he can see the whole world everywhere. Now, Paul then says, well, or in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Only God knows. Well, that means that he was so overwhelmed and overpowered by this vision, he didn't know where he was or what he was seeing or what in the world's going on. He didn't know whether he was bodily ascended into heaven or not. I don't think he was. I think his, spirit, his spiritual self, his spirit being, as they say, was what was carried up into heaven. His body was probably in a trance somewhere back here on planet Earth. There's too many, by the way, this shows that Paul recognizes the possibility of consciousness outside of the body. Paul realizes there's at least the possibility that a spirit can exist outside the body. And I fully believe that, having listened to the testimony of people who have out-of-body experiences today. And by the way, there's so much evidence of out-of-body experiences today, it would be foolish to even try to deny that they exist. They do exist. Some, of course, are demonic. But nonetheless... There's too much evidence of people seeing other people that they recognize even though they're not in their physical body. And this is what happened to Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul says, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. This man, of course, is Paul. Was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. He mentions that whether in the body or not. He mentioned that twice. I guess he wants to let them know that this, this, this vision was not your ordinary vision. So this must have been an awesome, overpowering experience for Paul to repeat this twice. Now, he was caught up into paradise. Where is that? That's heaven, the third heaven, as NIV Study Bible and John Gill say. Some people distinguish the two, however. Some people say that there's the third heaven and then there's paradise. And I am going to take a stand against the multiplication of place names. Tartarus is one place. Hell's one place. Hades is another place. Gehenna's another place. And on and on and on it goes. No, simplicity, folks. Paradise is heaven. In fact, what did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise, he says to the thief of the cross. That's heaven. Now, it's interesting, though. If, if that's true, then Jesus didn't go to hell when he died. He went to heaven, straight to heaven, which I believe is exactly where he went. This thing, this this myth that Jesus went down into hell after he was ris risen from the dead is unfortunately too widespread in the Christian church. Uh, Grudem, in his systematic theology, puts a hammer to that myth. And I think he does a good job of it. And it, Partly, it has to do with certain versions of the Apostles' Creed. It's not in all versions, but a lot of the versions of the Apostles' Creed have, and the third day he ascended into hell. Well, no, I don't believe he descended into hell. But anyway, because I believe he was caught up in the paradise. On the, just, he was saw the thief that day on, in the par, in paradise. But at any rate, let's just assume a paradise is heaven. So Paul was caught up into heaven where God lives and where Jesus lives. Ooh, that must have been exciting overpowering. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 4, and he, this man, Paul, he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. Now, Paul saw some stuff and God didn't let Paul tell everything. You know, Paul did tell a lot of revelations about salvation and, and, and things that we know as the basic gospel, things that are in the Bible. He did tell those things, but there were some things he was told, uh-uh, you can't tell everybody for reasons known only to God. Why did God hold back some of the revelation? Maybe God told Paul why he needed to keep silent on certain things. And I suspect, I speculate, that one thing he could have said is, Paul, you tell people about this, they're not going to believe you. They're going to have a hard enough time believing what you are going to reveal to them. And they're not going to believe everything. It's going to be so good, or maybe so bad, if you don't believe. This idea of not revealing everything on earth that is in heaven is reflected in Jesus' words in John 3.12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
what Jesus is saying. You don't deserve to hear about heavenly things. You won't even believe earthly things that I'm telling you. You're not listening to me. And I suspect that's why God told Paul, you know, there's certain things you better not say because it's casting your pearls before swine. It's increasing judgment on people when they refuse to listen. So just hold off on that. Here's another idea about the incredible things that Paul saw. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, it's unimaginable how great heaven is going to be. And you won't listen to the testimony of Christians talking about their heavenly home and going home. That is something that you will not take out of the heart of a Christian. It's what it's going to be like to get eternal life. Eternal. What part of eternal do we not understand? Eternal means forever. Not only in time, but also... but. But here, it also talks about our life in heaven as being of a quality that is unimaginable, that has never been seen or heard of before. Well, whatever it was that Paul saw, it kept him going, as the NIV study Bible points out. I mean, he went through all kinds of persecutions that would have killed most people. What Paul went through was incredible, and he kept right on going because God gave him a vision. And by the way, if we want to make an application here, you're probably not going to have a vision quite to the extent that Paul did, but if God's going to reveal something to you, It's going to keep you going through the hard times of life because we live in a veil of tears. We live in a war zone. This planet is racked with persecution and troubles and tribulation. In fact, right now as I'm speaking, the whole world is locked down because of the coronavirus. The government's talking about supporting, in America, supporting 70% of the incomes. We're already, what, $23 trillion in that? What's another trillion or two between friends? As the hospitals prepare for the surge, they don't have enough masks. My neighbor was just asked to start sewing and making masks because they don't exist. There's not enough ventilators, and all hell is breaking loose in the whole world because of the China-Wuhan virus. Well, that just emphasizes my point. This world's not easy, and if you have a vision of God that he's told you to do something, keep right on going, and if you're going to give up, he'll give you a little supernatural encouragement when you need it. And I believe that Paul, because he went through things most people didn't go through, he needed extra supernatural encouragement, and that's why his visions were so spectacular. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 5. On behalf of this man I will boast. Of course, this man is Paul. But on my own behalf I will not boast. In other words, he'll boast about the man that went up to see the visions, but he's not going to boast about himself in his earthly life because he's just an ordinary Joe like the rest of us. He's got weaknesses just like the rest of us, and he's going to boast about those weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12.10, we'll hop ahead to five verses. Paul says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So you see the weakness and the strong strength are juxtaposed with one another. When God gives you something that makes you strong, he'll give you something that's weak. Or when the world gives you something that's weak, God will give you something that's strong, he'll keep you going. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, refraining from boast, he has not talked about this vision for 14 years. And Adam Clark makes this cogent remark. How many people who had had such visions would have kept quiet for 14 years? Not many. Paul was a man of integrity. He was not trying to be a guru. Paul says, if I wish to boast, I would not be a fool. However, in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2 Corinthians 11:16 and 17, he says that boasting does make him to be a fool. 
It's not a contradiction. I'll explain why in a minute after I read 2 Corinthians 11, 1 and 16 and 17. 11, 1 first. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, as he proceeds to boast. 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen through 17. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. In other words, I'm going to be a fool and boast. But now he says in chapter 12, verse 6, I would not be a fool if I should wish to boast. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, because Paul is obviously being ironic in, cha- in chapters 11, verse 1 and 11, 16 through 17. He's being ironic. He says, I'm going to boast a little as a fool. But he doesn't really mean it. He's being sarcastic. But here in chapter 12, verse 6, he's being literal. I would not be a fool if I boast. I actually saw all those revelations. I just hadn't talked about it because I didn't want to be pumping myself up as some kind of super apostle. I just didn't want to brag about it. But now that it's necessary to brag about it, I'm going to. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, once again, when there's great revelation, then there's humility better come with it or God's going to keep you humble. In this case, God allowed, he didn't do it, but he allowed Satan himself as an apostle or as a messenger to come straight to Paul and harass Paul. Now, I don't know what this was. In fact, nobody knows what it was. Let me give you some options as to what this thorn in the flesh was. Corporal afflictions. Physical, getting beat, perhaps. Physical sickness, Adam Clark, uh, John Gill suggests that. Adam Clark says it's very unlikely, and I do agree it's very unlikely. This is not a good verse for cessationists to use against divine healing, incidentally, because a lot of people do not agree that the thorn in the flesh is physical sickness, although you hear that a lot. John Gill says another option is the sinful corruptions of the human flesh. God gave me, Satan delivered some sin to me to make me sin. Adam Clark denies that. He says sin does not keep one from being exalted. And I would say, yeah, exactly so, Adam Clark. Sin makes you do the opposite. of It makes you, it makes you uh, proud. Sin usually, sinners are usually proud people. So that doesn't sound like a good option. Now, you could argue that once you, Paul saw the sin, as in Romans 7, he would say, oh, my gosh, I'm sinning, and I despise it. That which I do, I don't want to do, and this is terrible. Maybe I'm not such a big shot after all because I can't stop my sin. Well, maybe, but I don't think that's what the thorn in the flesh is, the sinful corruptions of the human flesh. I don't think so. Persecutions, I think that's probably more likely candidate. He was persecuted a lot, and maybe this was a particular persecutor of his. That would be my guess, although it's just a guess. Adam Clark says it's the false apostles at Corinth. A false apostle at Corinth. I, I don't know why Clark says the false apostle. Note that the words here in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, a messenger of Satan was sent to harass Paul. That's an apostle of Satan, and Paul's dealing with false apostles in Corinth, so that's kind of what how Adam Clark looks at it. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. There was some kind of something aggravating. And notice that Paul pleaded. Well, we'll see that in the next verse. Let me read that. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, and also verse 9. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh. And think about this, by the way. We hear that metaphor so often we don't think about it. You ever been stuck with a rose thorn, one of these long, skinny, sharp, black thorns? They're horrible. And if it gets stuck in your flesh and you can't get it out, oh, you got to pick it out with a, a burnt needle, a sterilized needle poking at it, trying to get it out from under your skin. It's a pain in the neck. 
So three times Paul pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now notice, Paul, he didn't just pray once. Whoop, God, like a genie, comes and answers the prayer. He prayed three times. and got no three times for an answer. Why? Because Paul had a reason for the prayer not being answered. But that didn't stop Paul from praying. He said, please, God. I mean, after all, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, Lord, please take this away from me. It's only human to pray when bad things are happening. But we have to be ready for a potential no answer. Jesus received a no answer, and he went ahead and did what he had to do, which was suffer. And Paul here pleaded that the thorn of the flesh would be taken away, and it was not taken away. This was the answer he got, verse 9. But he said to me, God, or Jesus, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so a lot of times we don't get an answer of prayer in the form of an outright deliverance of our outward circumstances. A lot of times the answer to our prayer comes in the form of endurance to get through the circumstances. That's because we live on this planet. Now, at the end of time, when we're in heaven eternally with Jesus, we're not going to have to do this. Won't that be nice? We won't have to endure. The only thing we're going to have to endure is an eternal weight of glory. Now, notice that if I want to make a general principle out of the fact that sometimes God gives us endurance rather than outward deliverance, there was a special need in this case. Paul needed to be kept humble. And sometimes if Jesus wants to keep you humble, you might have to endure things. But if there's not a problem with humility, if you're perfectly humble, it might be that God might deliver you from the outward circumstances. But that's his call. It's between you and him. It's interesting. I mentioned Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul here says three times, don't let this happen to me. Take this message of Satan away. That was exactly how many times Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane for the cup to be passed from him. He got the same answer. No. Adam Clark thinks that the parallel is so striking that Paul is making a quote-unquote manifest allusion to Jesus' words in Gethsemane. Maybe so. How did the Lord tell Paul this? John Gill suggests maybe an audible voice, maybe an extraordinary revelation of the Holy Spirit, maybe a divine impression on the mind. And I say, not Gill, but I say that maybe Jesus had another vision. He just had a vision that occasioned this thorn in the flesh. Maybe Jesus said, I'm sorry, Paul, I'm not going to answer it. I don't know. It would have to be a triple vision. Three times Jesus comes back and says, no, Paul. So we're not, I'm not really sure how Jesus did that, but he did. Now notice Jesus says, my power. Jesus has power to deliver us from every weakness. We're weak, he's strong. We're weak, he's strong. That's the theme here. So when we get weak, Jesus gets stronger. We get weaker, Jesus gets stronger. As I sit here and the whole world is shutting down because of the coronavirus, the Wuhan virus, the Hu Flung Dung virus. I think China's getting back at me for all those years I complained about their government censoring my emails or, or spying on me. But at any rate, the weaker we get, the stronger Jesus gets. The less mask and ventilators they are, the stronger Jesus gets. The faster the virus can, gives people the disease as it spreads, as its contagion spreads. And the weaker we get because of that, the stronger Jesus is. The more the doctors have to triage the old people in the hospitals, the stronger Jesus gets. The more the economy tanks because nobody's working, the stronger Jesus gets. We go now to the last verse in this audio, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Now, why does he put up with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities? Why would anybody put up with that? Well, he says so right here. For the sake of Christ. For spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's willing to put up with anything. For when I am weak, he says, then I am strong. 
So when he gets weak, Jesus gets strong in him. Here's some scriptures, scriptures about him being strong. Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, who makes me strong. I can do anything, all things, through him who strengthens me. That is a fantastic verse. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So Jesus, go, uh, Paul goes back to the to the example of Jesus, talking about weakness, he was crucified. How weak can you be? You can't be any weaker than that to be a crucified criminal on a cross, an alleged criminal on the cross. But he lives by the power of God, by the resurrection power of God. He rose again from the dead. And so Paul uses that ultimate example. This is in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 13. He uses that ultimate example of weakness turned into strength to apply to Christians, where he says, for we also are weak in him, we're weak in Jesus, but in dealing with you, we will live by him, by the, with him, by the power of God. And live, that means resurrected, by the power of God. Now notice Paul says, he, I am content with weaknesses. Here's a translation issue, because the King James has, I take pleasure in weaknesses. And that, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, is too strong, and I believe it is. I don't think anybody takes pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But content means you just put up, that's the way it is, you put up with it. Doesn't mean you're some kind of a masochist who likes bad things to happen. It just means you put up with it, you're content with it. So I think that the Holman Christian Study Bible Translation is much better than the KGV here. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. In chapter 12, in, at the end of chapter 12 in our next audio, we will cover verses 11 through 21, where Paul expresses his deep concern for the Corinthian church. I hope you listened to that audio, and I hope you've enjoyed this one.